0: Welcome back. As we head into our two of our daily three-hour tour, great author and, and, and the person probably more responsible for reviving the serious study of the works and presidency of Calvin Coolidge than anyone else is Amity Schlaes. I talked to you a lot last year about her book, Great Society, A New History. She has a um, new edition out of the autobiography of Calvin Coolidge, which she is co-edited. And she had a really interesting op-ed in The Hill on the folly of presidents using the term great. Think of great society for a moment, if you will. Amity, old friend, how are you?
1: How are you, old friend? I've worked with Seth for a long time, and he's always the top
0: quality. Oh, you're so nice. You're so kind. Uh, I've missed you. It's been way too long, and that's my fault. We need to to do this more often. Congratulations on the new edition of... uh, of this autobiography of Calvin Coolidge. And I didn't get a chance to talk to you much about your book on the Great Society, but I'm going to congratulate you on it now as well. It came out last year. Gosh, what a great book that was. Just so fantastic.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, the two are kind of related, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Because Coolidge pursued the opposite of great. He pursued slow, incremental good, different pace, uh, different uh, personality, subordinated the oneself, himself, Calvin Coolidge, to his principles, which were lower taxes, federalism, restraint, bipartisan work, and and discipline. And so, what a contrast. Huge to contrast. The great Society, which was all about Lyndon Johnson himself. The, the problem with the word great, it's okay once in a while to have great aspirations, is that there's slippage and it, it ends up being about the executive himself. The state, it's me, right? Yeah. Roosevelt said this election is about me. Yeah. And then everyone forgets the platform and gets all confused, hence the confusion of the GOP right this sex.
0: I remember Barack Obama talking about how he was on the agenda in the midterms, right? It was he who was on the agenda in the midterms. But, yeah, talk a little bit about that and this op-ed that that was the springboard for this discussion, if you don't mind. When presidents use the term great um, as opposed to the types, Calvin Coolidge types or Reagan for that matter, when they're talking about the people or institutions – Uh, Not so good when it is programs. The Great Society turned out to be, as you point out in your book, as you just said as well, the Great Society turned out to have a lot of negative consequences to it. In fact, in retrospect, maybe a lot of us think it was more bad than good. Fair enough? Oh, yes. I think
1: it's set us up for the current problem. So, Mm -hmm. example... Uh, President Johnson had a few greats. One of them was he wanted to cure poverty, C-U-R-E, Mm cure. Another was he wanted better scores in reading and math. And another one was he said, well, if we support African Americans through payment programs, racial divisions will narrow. Right. uh, A few trillions later, the reading scores are worse. We haven't cured poverty. In fact, the rate of poverty abatement decelerated subsequent to the Great Society, and apparently we do have racial division in the United States, which is a shame and unnecessary. So um, the policy of recognizing groups, which dates back to Franklin Roosevelt, whose picture now President Biden has showcased Um, And rewarding them. I will give this to African-Americans. I will give this Mm -hmm. to old people. I Mm -hmm. will give this to another group. Farmers Mm -hmm. always leaves someone out and and reduces trust uh, among the electorate because they become. As in the title of my 30s history, The Forgotten Man. I was one just going to say, is, is that another version wrecking? of The
0: Forgotten Man? Yeah, I was just going to ask you yeah, that.
1: I mean, yeah. it's related. It's bad for trust. And what Coolidge said is we're all in it together. And if I give to one group, I'm taking away from another group mm-hmm. or another man. Mm-hmm. And so maybe I should just give less. But it's also about cleaning up after scandal stuff. Uh, there was a scandal in the 20s, Teapot Dome, which mm-hmm. was. When government oil was uh, conveyed to the private sector through crooked favoritist leases, and that's worse than it even sounds, because if you believe in privatization and hawk privatization, as the Republican Party, uh, private hands are better than government hands, well, then you better not play favorites when you hand out the contracts, right? Mm-hmm. So, so Harding, the president, actually besmirched the idea of the private sector through teapot zone, this government oil, Navy oil scandal. And Coolidge came in, Harding died suddenly, and had to clean it all up. How did he do it? He didn't say, I am great. He said, I will work to get to perfection on executing the political commitments Harding and I have made, which were basically to get taxes down for all, and to make, get the private sector, um, get the public sector out of the way so the private sector could provide for a recovery from, well, World War I, inflation, and their own pandemic of the influenza of uh, the end, you know, 1918. So a lot of similarities, and it worked.
0: Amity, so, you said it's some
1: service you, to an idea rather than to a man. Well,
0: let me let me since since there is this weird conflation between individuals and groups. Let me ask you this: in something you said, I just I couldn't get off it when you said it. Talking about racial division for a moment, you did a deep, hugely deep dive in your in your in your um, in your book, *The Great Society: A New History*. Uh, on On racial division was a huge problem in the sixties, obviously, we all know that the birth of the or the new birth of the new civil rights movement, I suppose one might even say are racial divisions and i don 't mean the legal stuff because that 's obviously different, changed for the better dramatically, so obviously celebration we should celebrate, but the culture of the country are we more racially divided? Than we were in the '60s, because I, I got to tell you, it yeah. feels something now feels very different than it did ten years ago for me.
1: I think we are, and Tom Sowell said it best. He said, "You know, black people aren't stupid. Yeah. If you offer them as a group an entitlement, they're going to want to take it, just like any group. Oh, I'm in X group. I deserve Y treatment." Mm-hmm right? Yeah. Um, and that changes their whole mentality, and it, 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 um, it diminishes all, but it particularly diminishes the favoritized group. Um, this is why some of us oppose the Holocaust Museum in the United States. The Holocaust is not really part of American history, and we didn't want the Jewish mu- a Jewish museum that um, treated us all as victims who needed some kind of compensation um you know that whole idea so but once with any group you say you're entitled to double x of what everyone else gets well of course it's then you, then all of a sudden you, you know if you're in that group you get anxious wait a minute it's my term for for a covid vaccine i'm in the special category i better race to it. instead of stepping back and saying you know we're all in this together we're all in the same boat is what Coolidge said whether you came over in steerage or you came over on the Mayflower, we're all in the same boat here. That's what Coolidge said. And it it is true that Americans have more in common than we have different. And this racial identity uh, institutionalization, which occurred in the Great Society, has hurt us rather than helped us.
0: The speech of Calvin Coolidge's, you may steer me to a different one if you want, but the speech of Calvin Coolidge's, I have probably redounded to and used and quoted the most is his uh, speech in July of 1926 uh, on the anniversary of uh, – uh, his Fourth of July speech effectively of, of 1926 celebrating 150 years of the Declaration of Independence. And I thought it was about as strong an intellectual rebuke of the progressive idea of progressivism in America that I've, I've really ever seen by a president – and and I and I guess what I'm asking here about that speech particularly and about Calvin Coolidge as a president, Amity, is how much of that intellectual problem was on his mind? How much did he worry about? Oh,
1: a great yeah, deal. Yeah. Also, if you look at his, by the way, he gave that speech on July 5th. Okay. Why would he do that? Yeah, his July 4 was a Sunday. There you go. And Coolidge did not want a conflict between church and state. Beautiful. He wanted to show respect. Very interesting. Remember, Fourth of July wasn't only the nation's birthday. It happened to be Calvin Coolidge's that's right. birthday that's right. as well. That's right. That's and right. it was Sunday, uh, so very interesting little dynamic there. And he said, you know, if all men are equal, that is fine.
0: I love that. Yeah. There's
1: something restful about the Constitution. If all men are equal, that is final. That's where we are, all men are equal. And he was a wonderful... Um, you know, had some wonderful remarks about civil rights, mm-hmm. including when an African-American was running for office in New York State and a citizen wrote Coolidge and said, well, maybe we shouldn't have a black man running on the Republican ticket. And, and Coolidge wrote back and published the letter in the paper. I'm amazed you would even say that. Right. I saw African-Americans serve in World War I, and I'm going to defend them. They are entitled to all we are you entitled bet. to.
0: He understood um, that. In oh.
1: terms of rights and responsibilities um but that that's what i remember he said those who who uh, go beyond to different things and try try out different things beyond the constitution are going backwards not forward that's right through the eras of potentates and dictators. And I thought that was a direct
0: uh, rebuke to Woodrow Wilson, who had given several speeches along those lines, by the way, that the Declaration of Independence was to be fluid, and it was, in fact, not final. Well, you know,
1: and that that speech is actually in our autobiography. Great. This book is for your children. Good. It um, has footnotes for weird words. It has a timeline. It has a few cool speeches for people to read. And... Um, It has uh, essays, including one on the gubernatorial presidency, why governors can be better presidents than senators by Governor Jim Douglas, a Republican who served in a Democratic state in Vermont many terms. So it's, it's sort of. Here's how it works. Also, we have good pictures, I should add, in this book. We invested in pictures that will be fresh to your eye. Oh,
0: I love it. Um, I'm always looking for, and audience is always asking me for good books for history for their kids. This is it. Um, this, this is the, the the most recent and the best, Amity Schles. Um, give me a word that you have in the index that is a complicated or weird word I'd be curious to know.
1: I'm trying to think. Well, we do have an index. I'm trying to think a weird word in the. Index. Well, you
0: said you had mentioned that you have a, you have a, a glossary oh, or something. we do have
1: an index, and we have footnotes. I think the important point is, um, I'm not sure if it's in the book, but yeah. a concept that we use when we write are, um, for the candidates for the Coolidge Scholarship is yeah. Coolidge said property rights and personal rights were the same thing. Perfect. And that poor men benefited from property rights as rich men. Perfect. Um, well, well um, let's try and figure out why he would say that. He wasn't lying. Um, what he meant was the lure of property is um, it causes people to strive, and then they do well um, in the United States, at least often. Um, and you think uh, you know it, we couldn't say that today. He also said. Um, Inflation is repudiation. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Inflation is repudiation. So what he's saying is, you're lying to yourself about what your money's worth and how much you're spending. Uh-huh. Well, President Coolidge had twin lion cubs, and they were named Budget Bureau and Tax Reduction.
0: Is that right? Um, he
1: named <laughs> right, and he said them. Even Stephen, you can just imagine sliding the steak across uh, across the cage bottom, right. Because he believed that they should stay the same weight. He liked the idea that they were twins. That is, you can't cut taxes unless you manage the budget as well. Very, very disciplined man.
0: Lincoln, Coolidge, Reagan, my three favorite presidents. And if you want to know more about that second one, Coolidge, get Amity Schles's latest, The Autobiography of Calvin Coolidge. Thanks, Amity, for everything so much.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Enjoy the day. And I hope everyone gets to know Calvin. If you were a stock, he'd be a buy. I like
0: thank it. You. I like it. Thank you, Amity. Come to Phoenix sometime soon, please. It's been way too Absolutely. long. God bless you. Take care. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. John Daniel Davidson over at The Federalist I think has the best take on the um, on the Dr. Seuss issue controversy, Contratov of, uh, of anyone. I thought I had a pretty good take on it in my monologue a couple of days ago uh, and some of what we said yesterday. Uh, he gets at it in a different direction, which I think is worth looking at because, you know, what happens in this world here? Uh, of politics that we live in is there are these um, truly important moments that indicate what the left thinks is, is up to and they move so fast one could write a book on these things but they come and go so fast that we're always on to the next thing and we don't have the repose or the moment to sit back and take in everything that they are doing whether it is you know transgender curricula in our schools or the allowing of uh transgender people to compete uh in college and high school athletics in a sex that they were not or in a gender they were not born into um that would be but one but there there there's there's just A million little pieces of what they do. And I think the Dr. Seuss one was a big one. John writes, to grasp how a man known as much for his message of tolerance as for his artistic genius could be canceled for racism. You have to understand what's actually happening here. The left's war on the past on long dead authors like Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss, isn't really about the past. It's about the future. It's about who gets to rule, under what terms. There's a predictable pattern to what we're seeing now. It's predictable because it has happened before in much the same way it's happening now. During China's Cultural Revolution in the 1960s and 1970s, the Chinese Communist Party at the direction of Mao Zedong called for the destruction of the Four Olds. Can anyone name them? Old customs, old culture, old habits, old ideas. All of these stood in the way of Mao's socialist ideology, so they had to be destroyed. Children and students were encouraged by the communist government to inform on their parents and elders, to shame and condemn them in public. The guilty were forced to recant in struggle sessions during which they were mocked and humiliated, sometimes tortured, sometimes murdered, before was over. Millions were. We're obviously not there, but the woke revolutionaries who now run our elite institutions and exert outsized influence in the corridors of power are following this same pattern. First, they come for the monuments, destroying the icons of the past and rewriting history to turn even our national heroes and founding fathers into enemies. The animating ethos of the mobs pulling down statues is the same as the New York Times editors who gave us the 1619 project. And because there is no limiting principle to iconoclasm, they have moved on. The city of Charlottesville, for example, having removed or tried to remove every last Confederate monument, is now pleading for someone, anyone, to haul away a giant statue of the explorers Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. The 18-foot-tall bronze statue, which was erected in 1919 and depicts Lewis and Clark with Sacagawea crouched behind them, is free for anyone who can prove he knows how to move it safely, although at this point it's a wonder the city doesn't just dynamite the thing to rubble, Taliban-style, and be done with it. Then they came for the books, destroying any ideas of literature that challenges their ideology, like Ryan Anderson's book on the dangers of transgenderism, which Amazon canceled last month. Even seemingly unobjectionable books can be targeted, if not for their content and for the race of their author. Just ask Janine Cummins, whose novel American Dirt drew the ire of the left last year, simply because Cummins, who is white, wrote a book about Mexican drug cartels. The list goes on and on. So much for statues and books at some point. The left will come for actual people because the ideology of revolution demands that dissent and therefore dissidents be silenced by force if necessary. If you think that's an exaggeration, recall what happened all across the country last summer when Black Lives Matter protesters took to the streets. They didn't just march and chant. They rioted. They attacked businesses, destroyed entire city blocks, and carried out a campaign of intimidation, harassing, and in some cases, attacking random people if they didn't kneel and repeat the slogans of their revolution. Dozens of people lost their lives in the chaos and violence that ensued. I have more to say about this, as does John Daniel Davidson, and we'll do it when we come back. 602 Give us a call. Welcome back to the Seth Try. I got a funny email from a listener uh, saying how much he likes the show just during the break here. And he said, do you remember what that song was that you left at 4.30 yesterday, went out with at 4.30 yesterday? And I politely said I, there's no, I couldn't possibly remember <laughs> what it would be. Maybe give me a few lyrics or something. But... Um, My memory is is, (laughs) – I couldn't tell you what song it was. Oh, you you have the technology to know what we went out with at 4.30 yesterday? Really? That's my producer, Bill. But I was going to – the other option is to just wait a couple of weeks because they all rotate. I think – how many songs do we have in our bumper? A thousand. So it takes about a month to cycle through. I have selected probably what? 990 of them? Have I? You've have you gotten ten in there? You probably maybe not even ten, huh? Yeah. If people say, "Does it?" Do you really get to pick the songs? Yes, I really. That is that is a perk of this job. That is a perk of this job. So uh, yeah, let me know what that four thirty song is, and we'll let Sal know what it was when you know. I can't believe you have the ability to know that. Of course you would. John Daniel Davidson writing in The Federalist was talking about the larger perspective, the larger issue involved in the Dr. Seuss uh, Contrata. And he was talking about um, – he was talking about the importance of remembering what happened just last summer when in the name of racial equality and equity – Dozens of people lost their lives in chaos and riots after entire city blocks and businesses were destroyed. The people behind the statue toppling, the digital book burnings, and the street violence won't stop until all three of these things. History ideas and dissidents have been destroyed. These are all impediments to their cultural revolution, and they mean to eliminate them. So forget about Dr. Seuss. Forget about the statues and the books. Those things are just the beginning. It could easily get much worse. The woke revolutionaries of the left can't be bargained with or appeased. They believe this is a zero-sum game, that one side will win and one side will lose, and they're right. Um, They are right. And if you read any serious dissident from – or any published dissident – from Eastern Europe, from I don't know the 1940s till the 1980s, you will see that's what they're talking about. Mostly they wrote from prison. But as Milan Kundera put it, the first step in liquidating a people—he was he was of course a Czech dissident—the first step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, its history, and then have somebody write new books, manufacture a new culture, invent a new history. Before long, the nation will begin to forget what it is and what it was. Isn't that the effort here? Isn't that the attempt here? Marx says, how does Marx put it? Until now, the task has been to understand history. Our task is to change it. He says that in his notes on Feuerbach. Okay, we know what the song was yesterday at 4.30, Sal. It was Kim Carnes. Crazy in the Night. Kim Carnes, Crazy in the Night. Should we go out with it again just for fun? Can we? Will it reset everything? No. All right, we'll do it again. Crazy in the Night, Kim Carnes. I think it's a relatively new edition, though um, not a relatively new song. Uh, John Daniel Dav- Davidson um, uh, at The Federalist. That was um, That was who wrote that. And I agree. We, we we need to now start putting these things together. Uh, we need to start collecting not a big book of or a big black book of communism, but a big black book of the left and what they've been up to in this country because we easily forget. And pretty soon you get the idea. When you're ready to get rid of Lincoln and Dr. Seuss, what else are you ready to get rid of? Be right back. Love how he bends those notes. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Balance of Nature. Favorite product I've ever taken or endorsed. I just love it, and I know you will too if you aren't already using it. Just like that guy on the TV ad says, since he's been taking it, he's gotten nowhere close to sick. It's kept me well for over a year now since I've been taking it. I usually get several colds a year when the seasons change. didn't happen. hasn't happened since I've been on Balance of Nature. I get 31 different fruits and veggies in every single daily dose because it's made of all-natural vine-ripened fruits and veggies picked at their peak of ripeness, reduced into vegetarian capsules. With their unique cold press process, it'll improve your health, your energy, and your immunity. It's the only thing I take. I hate to even call it a supplement because it's all natural. It's no sugar, no chemicals, no GMOs, all good stuff. Blueberries, pineapples, garlic, wheatgrass, celery, onion, carrots, kale. Everything you would want and things you would want that you don't take or get on your own. It's fantastic. And, you know, it's not just good for you. It's a good thing to support. Companies like Balance of Nature, which support shows like this. So good and good for you. They have free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order right now. And you can get and access that by calling 800-24-687-51. We're going to balanceofnature.com and using discount code BALANCE. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Balanceofnature.com. Good and good for you. I was going to surprise you, Bill, because you've been having such a good day before I get into our next big and important topic here. But you have an amazing memory. I mean, you do. You happen to have a uh, a steel trap memory. I remember you saying that. Yeah, it's true. So by surprise, no looking at anything, I'm going to ask you to give me the rainbow monologue from Magnum P.I. Can you do it? Can you do it off the top of your head? Did Eddie Money want to go back? (laughs) Okay. Yes, yes. Do it. Give it to us. No
1: notes. I must have seen a hundred rainbows since I've been in the islands, but each one seems to take my breath away. Despite the best efforts of Mr. Corcoral, my seventh grade science teacher, might also be middle school, but we'll go with seventh, he used to lecture our class on light reflection and refraction and polarization and prisms, but I knew I knew that wasn't what rainbows were really, really all about. So when I got a C- minus on my midterm, Mr. Corkle said he was concerned I might go through life not understanding the importance of geometric optics. To tell you the truth, I was concerned that Mr. Corkle might go through life without understanding the importance of a rainbow. Do you have the original? Getting it now.
0: So Bill memorized this. Just because every once in a while I'll show him a, a monologue that I for some reason or other find important or entertaining. He'll go home and the next day he'll come back having it totally memorized. And and not just temporarily. This was two years ago. And um and yeah, this was like two or three years ago that I shared this with him, this opening monologue, and he just he just I think you did it perfectly. Let's hear the original.
1: I must have seen a hundred rainbows since I've been in the islands. But each one just seems to take my breath away. Despite the best efforts of Mr. Corko, my high school science teacher. He used to lecture our class on light reflections and refraction, polarization and prisms, but I knew... I knew that that really wasn't what rainbows were all about. So when I got a C-minus on my midterm... Mr. Corkle told me that he was really worried that I would go through life not understanding the importance of geometrical optics. But to tell you the truth, I was a lot more worried Mr. Corkle might go through life not understanding the importance of a rainbow.
0: Well done, Bill close enough right yeah i think the only thing you got wrong was middle school and high school right and worried for concern little things like that. worried for concern i think it was probably you probably had it in the original text and tom Selleck had changed it there you go that's probably what happened
1: when we come back i'll give you the
0: opening monologue from the prestige why did you do uh what what made you think of this because you brought this up with me a couple of days ago how did you get onto that again Oh, just somebody – It's not as
1: if we're having a lot of rainbows right now. No, just somebody mentioned rainbows in my presence, and that was enough. Who? I I launched into it. Who? Uh, Somebody I know. Somebody
0: you know. A family member? Yep. An issue? Someone who might or may not have been an issue of yours? An issue. I like that. An issue of yours. (laughs) Okay. Let me move on to something um, much more serious, if I might. Uh, By the way, I I just – I'm going to ask this almost every day. Where is Jill Biden on the school's issue? And where is Kamala Harris on anything? Wasn't she supposed to be this great role model? Is that the role model young girls want when they look up to her, someone who fades away into the background never to be heard from again? Is that—is that it? Isn't, is not Isn't—is this not The Handmaid's Tale? By the way, all credit to Doug Ducey for um, telling schools, public schools, you're all open on March 15th. You're all open, just open. Be done with it. Good for him. Joe Biden calls Texas Governor Greg Abbott, um, calls Texas Gov- Governor Greg Abbott Neanderthal, Neander engaging in Neanderthal thinking for opening his state. You've got to think about how frustrating it must be for someone in the Biden administration or Joe if it's a moment of sentience for him, um, to think about, gosh, I want to mandate masks. I want to mandate certain shutdowns. I don't have the power to do it, so I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to mandate it on federal property, and I'm going to mandate it on federal employees. And then you go (laughs) and see Texas, the biggest state in the union, saying the heck with that, we are open and no masks. I mean, mask if you want to, roam if you want to, mask if you want to, but we're not mandating it anymore. And this business about 50%, 75% capacity, that's over too. Because it is Abbott's, it is the governor's constitutional authority. And boy, it is, it is such... Such a frustrating thing, I'm sure, not just to Biden, but to Democrats generally, because if you apply this thinking and realize that Biden doesn't have the authority to mandate that we all wear masks that governors do or don't, well, they have that authority, whether they want to use it or not. To realize that is to force yourself to kind of go back a little bit to the previous president and all the criticism he received for not mandating more when you realize wasn't that much he could mandate. There wasn't that much he could mandate. And as far as masks go, Joe Biden Joe Joe Biden is the worst example of how to use a mask. Look at him today, touching it, fiddling with it, everything you're not supposed to do. And by the way, why is he back down to one mask? He was a two masker a week ago. In Scandinavia, we have no poverty, a Swedish economist once told Milton Friedman. That's interesting, Friedman said in response, because among Scandinavians in America, we have no poverty either. David Harsani says, I think about this interaction whenever I see progressive arguments about imaginary Scandinavian utopias such as the one Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted yesterday when she tweeted, it is utterly embarrassing that pay people enough to live is a stance that's even up for debate. Override the parliamentarian and raise the wage. McDonald's workers in Denmark are paid $22 an hour plus six weeks paid vacation. $15 an hour is a deep compromise, a big one considering the phase-in. The most obvious problem with Ocasio-Cortez's contention is that Denmark, like other Scandinavian Scandinavian nations, doesn't have a statutory minimum wage. Industries and workers engage in sector-by-sector salary negotiations, which might well undermine intra-industry competition, but which is a much better idea than the flat national wage floor being sold to you by Democrats. So this popular progressive talking point about Denmark's miracle middle class fast food worker doesn't make sense to begin with, especially when one considers that per capita median income in the United States is virtually the same as Denmark. Quite a feat given that we're a pluralistic nation of 331 million people that brings in another 900,000 every year, many from poor nations, and that Denmark is a homogenous country of fewer than 6 million people which has shut its borders to immigrants. Um, Denmark's generous welfare state is propped up by shared social and cultural norms, Harsanyi points out, and institutions that are habitually reviled by American progressives, like unimpeded international trade, low regulatory burdens on businesses, and oil and gas checks. Denmark and Norway are Western Europe's largest oil and gas producers. Then there is the matter of what exactly $45,000 the salary an employee making $22 an hour on a full-time basis would earn, what that means in each country. Denmark can afford its system because high taxes are paid by all its citizens, not just the wealthy. Not only do Danish fast food employees make $45,000, hand over half their earnings to the government, they pay a 25% VAT on most purchases in return – Danes are afforded all kinds of government-provided services. Yeah, you can make $45,000 a year in Denmark. Just be prepared to have 75% of it taken away by the government. Is that what you want, AOC? You know it is. That's the thing. It we We'll be right back.